This is The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Glad you're with us. Lots to get to this hour, including something I am calling magical coming up at the end of the show. We're also going to look at leading edge work coming out of British Columbia for people two to three times more likely to experience mental health concerns than the general population. And when I say the word fashion, you doubtlessly think of clothes, men's wear, women's wear. Uh, Today, we're going to meet a designer and fashion lecturer who is busting out of labels in fashion like man and woman and creating clothes for people who identify as non-binary or gender non-conforming. But first, I was so appalled when I read a story this past weekend, and I should know better. This still goes on in the New York Post that I shared it and my angry feelings about it on Twitter. Let me read a bit of it to you and see if you share my upset and disbelief when you hear it. The headline from the New York Post reads, Queen's school blamed student who was bullied by classmates for being gay, according to a lawsuit. And it goes like this. A Queen's boy survived brain cancer and multiple foster homes only to enter a living nightmare when classmates tormented him for being gay and school administrators blamed him for the bullying A new lawsuit charges. Kids at IS-126Q in Long Island City spent two years relentlessly taunting the victim as a Bagadass and bitch slammed him for acting like a girl and told him he would be damned to hell by God because of his lifestyle, according to a Manhattan federal court lawsuit filed by the boy's dad. School administrators accused the boy of either fabricating the harassment or bringing it on himself by being too open about his sexuality, even telling the child he should learn to respect some of the horrific comments slung at him by other kids. This is so upsetting that he should learn to respect some of the horrific comments slung at him by other kids as a difference of opinion, including pronouncements that LGBTQ people should burn in hell. Family claims one of the boy's fathers, Jason, who was last name we're not going to use right now, joins me. His law, his lawyer, Alana Kaufman, is with him and may weigh in as if need be. Guys, I'm sorry for my emotional reaction to the story. It is disgusting. Thank you, Sean. And please don't apologize for being emotional. I really appreciate the care and concern um, that you have for, you know, my son and my family and obviously for LGBTQ youth. Um, all over uh, the world to experience um, bullying and harassment because of who they are. What is it like as a father to feel this way, to, to have your son treated so poorly? Um, I don't know how to, to explain the feeling that happens when I heard my son say many times that he wanted to kill himself because the bullying wouldn't stop. That is a, a horrific thing that, you know, no parent should um, uh, have to experience, especially because of what's happening to their child at school. Um, uh, and uh, it was even more shocking that it was happening in a New York City public school when there are state laws and city laws um, that specifically protect LGBTQ students from you know, harassment and discrimination and bullying based on their sexual orientation. We have all this in place now, and I don't understand um, and want to know what you make uh, of the administrators of the school participating in their own way by telling him the things they told him. What 
planet are we living on? What year is this? This is New York. Um, you must have been shocked. What do you make of their uh, what they told your son? Well, my, my family experienced a really hard lesson in the difference between there being a law and the law being applied and followed. Mm. And I think that um, in uh, um, my son's school, um, there was a, a lack of leadership um, at the very top, uh, ensuring that the school environment was safe and respectful for all students, that um, you know any kind of harassment and bullying uh, and discrimination was swiftly dealt with, um, and, and that also the uh, underlying reasons why the school might be experiencing um, more um, you know, harassment and bullying uh, um, than others were explored and dealt with. Um, you know, in, in the lawsuit, um, we highlight how um, you know, my son's former school had far advanced notice that they had a problem. New York City schools have an annual school survey where both um, uh, students and teachers answer questions about um, the school environment, whether they uh, uh, witness um, bullying, um, whether or not, you know, that bullying is based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And in um, the year prior to and the two years that my uh, son attended school there, um, that school overall failed far worse um, in uh, people reporting bullying than uh, other schools in the district. And it raises a question, um, how is it possible that one school in a district could um, be so mm. unsafe? And that in this case, the, the school that we were able to emergency transfer my son to um, was so safe, even though they're both New York City public schools. Why is that? What have you told your son about why this happens to people? Um, you know, I, I, our, my focus with my son has been that um, it shouldn't happen to people. That there, that there isn't a uh, a reason. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you, you're saying that there is, but that um, our, our stance from the very beginning was that bullying and harassment is wrong and and in, in, in many cases illegal. Um, and that um, as his parents, we were going to um, engage and stand up for him and support and protect him no matter what. Um, you know, a boy who attended um, or was in uh, the foster system for four years, uh, went to seven different families, um, survived a brain tumor, um, was separated from his siblings in foster care. Um, systems failed him so much. And that failure was stopping with us, no matter what. So you have filed um, a lawsuit. The intention of the lawsuit is what? Justice and accountability. And what does that look like for you? Um, you know, I think it's up to uh, a judge and a jury to determine um, what justice and, and accountability looks like from from the law standpoint. Um, but, you know, we're, we're here talking with you and um, talking to this story to, you know, the New York Post and, and other outlets, um, because we don't want what happened to be swept under the rug in the back of some courtroom. We don't want the Department of Education to think that 
um, they can um, not be publicly held accountable for what happened. Maybe I could ask Alana to join us now and 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 tell us what some of the outcomes might look like um, from a judge and jury based on your experience. What what might be done? Sure. I think, you know, I'm going to echo actually a little bit of what Jason said here and say that, you know, their goal in filing this lawsuit is really public accountability. I mean, people bring lawsuits for different, very different reasons. I know this family very well at this point. And I think what they want to happen is for no student to ever experience what their son experienced ever again. Um, in a public school in New York City or anywhere. And, you know, hopefully this is a step in that direction. Um, you know, there are legal uh, remedies and uh, damages that are available to them at the end of the day if they prevail in their lawsuit. But I think what they really want is a loud and clear message that what happened is not okay and it should never happen again. I guess as a parent, um, you, which I'm not, but I can put myself in your shoes, I think, and I would be very worried about the damage, both short term and long term, that this does to someone. And as a gay man who was bullied um, as a kid, I know that you carry the scars of that. Do you worry about this for your son? Um, I do. And, um, you know, we can't go back and um, erase what happened, right? Just like but we couldn't go back and erase what happened to him when he was in foster care or, you know, make it so that he didn't have a brain tumor. Um, but what we can and, and need to do as his parents is show him that um, uh, seeking justice and accountability is um, the right thing to do. And that just the act of doing that um, is uh, a step towards um, healing from trauma. And that, um, uh, you know, we also are working very hard to ensure that he has access to um, the medical care and support that he needs. Um, in fact, um, the, the lawsuit outlines a, a prior um, hearing that we had to be a part of related to my son's individualized education plan because he has documented learning disabilities. Um, where uh, a magistrate, you know, uh, ruled that, that the um, school and Department of Education, you know, failed to um, uh, ensure that my son had a uh, uh, access to an appropriate and, and, and safe education to the extent that it um, is being required to um, pay for uh, specialized trauma therapy for my son. Um, yeah. What do you want? bullies to know about the profound effect that bullying has on people? And what would you say to the bullies who bullied your son? Um, you know, that's a really hard question because the, we know from what, you know, available research I've seen that, you know, bullying is, is an act of acting out to seek um, power and control over others. And not all the time, but often can come from a child experiencing some kind of trauma um, or abuse themselves, you know, maybe at home or in other places. Um, I, I feel such a tremendous sadness for kids who um, turn to bullying um, as a way to perhaps deal with the, the trauma that they may be experiencing at home. Um, or, you know, for other reasons. And, and we know from the available uh, research, at least I've seen, 
that that the key to addressing bullying is sort of a parallel parallel roads or solutions one that supports the bullying victims and another that supports those who are bullies and um uh, uh finds the underlying reasons that things are happening and uh includes the supports that that child or their family may need um mm. as well that's very generous of you when do you go to court Alana, I'll defer to you. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> Ask the is, lawyer. Yes. This is a, a, a long process. So our complaint was just okay. uh, filed last week. Um, you know, the city has an opportunity to respond. There will be a process of exchange of information. And if there is um, a trial in this case, it won't be for a number of years. I see. Okay. Well, I would love it if you would keep me um, posted and I'll follow this story as well. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Um, and I want to apologize to everybody for crying <laughs> at the top of this segment. You've got the Sean Pru show here on SiriusXM Canada Talks Channel 167. When we come back from break, we're going to talk to a fashion designer who's designing clothes, ignoring the labels like man and woman and creating them for people who identify as non-binary and gender non-conforming. And we've got that magic I promised you at the end of the show. You've got the Sean Prue show here on Series XM, Canada Talks Channel 167. We're glad you're here. The Sean Pru Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Glad you're with us on the way. I've got something magical to share with you at the end of the show. And a leading edge resource called More Than Sex is launching in British Columbia for people two to three times more likely to experience mental health concerns. That's coming up. But first, if I say the word fashion, you're going to think clothes. You might think of designers. You might think of women's wear and then men's wear. But what is fashion if you're non-binary or gender non-conforming? Toronto's Mick Carter, a gender-neutral fashion designer, entrepreneur, and Ryerson School of Fashion lecturer, is helping create a more inclusive future both on the runway and in life. And he joins us now. How are you today, Mick? Super well. How about you? I'm really good, thank you. Um, tell us why women's wear, men's wear is problematic for non-binary and, and gender non-conforming individuals. I understand, but for people who are listening right now that don't understand, how do you explain that? I mean, I think it's troubling and problematic for a couple of reasons. I think that for one, I think on the micro level, when you head into a store and you see that there's a women's wear section and a men's wear section, it's kind of and you identify as someone who is non-binary, um, you kind of have experiences of, of isolation. It, be, it makes the entire experience, the shopping experience, not that, not that exciting. And I feel like shopping and the, the act of embodying your gender should be something that should be celebrated. And so I really... And not only not exciting, but also um, challenging in a different level of emotions, because if you're looking to um, go into a section that's quote unquote, not for you um, exactly. and look around, there's a lot um, going on there, whether it's salespeople looking at you oddly, or I know you uh, were, were saying that if you were shopping, you'd go in and get stares. And sometimes those stares would be very violent. Absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And that was kind of what gave birth to Lumo Strano, for sure. 
um, after a number of shopping experiences where I'd be sort of in the women's section as a tall and, and at times imposing um, black person, I would get like a lot of microaggressions. And sometimes uh, they were things that were easier to manage. And sometimes they really, um, they were really sort of violent. And so I really wanted to create um, a fashion line that celebrated the experience of getting dressed for non-binary and gender non-conforming folk. Tell us about the importance of uh, the armor that we wear. The armor, like clothing as armor. Yeah, or clothing, yeah. Um, what what happens to us when we put on whatever we're expressing ourselves with that day? I mean, I think clothing for so many people is the first sort of tool that you have yeah. to sort of explore um, what gender expression means to you, right? And I think that it can... Um, can lead to feelings of, of feeling seen, of community cohesion. Um, and I think that it really creates space where marginalization is not happening, right? So I think that clothing is, is super important. And I think um, for everybody, it's super important. And a lot of people don't necessarily realize that. They think they're just putting on their pants, their shirt or whatever exactly. in the morning. Exactly. Um, but they're saying something to the world about themselves. And everybody knows what it feels like when you've got something really, really good on that suits you, that fits well, um, you feel like a million dollars. And so there's, there's a transformative power um, when we get dressed in the morning. And, and so I can imagine... If you're non-binary or your identity's in flux, you're transitioning, exactly. this, um, this leaves you out uh, in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Absolutely. 110%. Yeah. What's the, um, I want to go back to some of the reactions that you, you were getting. You said some of them were very violent. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so absolutely. I would say that in a couple of shopping spaces, it would be like, you know, like you're just rifling through, you know, the sale rack or something like that. And, you know, people take a look at you and like they move away. Um, and so those would be like, like kind of microaggressing or like, I would say that a more kind of explicit experience was while I was on my way to a shopping space, on my way to a mall, um, getting like stones thrown at you, you right. And, or comments you really made did. on the street. Oh my God, absolutely. Oh, wow. For sure. Um, and I, and I feel like that level of, um, that level of aggression isn't unique to me, right? Like, I think it's, it's something that gender expansive people really have, have had experience with and have had to be resilient, um, in the face of. And so, um, yeah. What's the threat to them? Do you think um, that they would be throwing things? I think potentially the threat would be that they're that the notion of like a binary gender system is one that is archaic and one that um, that doesn't necessarily need to continue being propagated. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's that challenge to to invite other people to live as freely and as authentically as as many gender expansive people have been doing for ages. So now tell us um, what uh, I've got people listening right now and they're wondering what gender neutral clothing looks like. And so describe, paint a picture to us of, of, of what you're doing when you're creating these clothes. Yeah, absolutely. So I would, I think that 
that kind of metaphor of painting is super, super important, right? Because I think that one thing about gender, gender fluid clothing or non-binary clothing is that it really sort of allows the body to be its own canvas, right? I think that with binary fashion, um, there's there's like formulas and and proportions that really dictate the sort of silhouette yes, or silhouettes the masculine that are or the feminine. Exactly, exactly. And I think right. that with non-binary and gender fluid clothing, that sort of pressure or that um that prescription kind of is eradicated and you you really get to to dress people as they are. Um, or as they they feel, and I think that that's so powerful, and it's been so rewarding. So, so give us an example of a piece of clothing, for example, like a top. Um, what's different about what you're designing um, vis-a-vis a shirt that I might wear as a cis male, um, or that a, a blouse that a woman might wear? A blouse, I'm so old-fashioned. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. I think that for one. Um, when I first started Lumos Reno, there was like conversations about androgynous or unisex fashion, right? And so I think for, at that point, a lot of the conversations and a lot of the pieces that were being created were ungendered or non-gendered, right? Like they were kind of uniformy, they were kind of block shaped, they were kind of right. neutral colors. Right. And I think the, the expansiveness of, um, gender gender fluid and non-binary brands um is that it allows for for tenets um or silhouettes that had been more ascribed to to femininity um to to move into clothing that fits different so to answer your question for instance like let's say we're talking about like a, a simple oxford shirt right so um that is stereotypically seen as as masculine right um non like making it non-binary for for lack of a a better idiom um could be ensuring that you you fit various bodies with that um with that one oxford shirt and a number of brands are doing that quite well and ensuring that trans masculine folk have access to to these shirts that really kind of fit them um, as opposed to shirts that they have to make do with, right? Um, I think what we've been doing at Lingo Strano has really been um, taking more feminine kind of stylizations and really bringing them into to these clothing that fit all bodies. Uh, so whether it be a ruffle, whether it be like, you know, big tool sorts of of mm-hmm. appliques. And I think that it's just been so powerful because when I see it on different bodies and when I see different identities animate those pieces with such joy, um, I just, it's been really lovely. Do you feel those pieces stand out um, against traditional menswear, traditional women's wear? I think that their potential is that it, A, it allows people to feel like their authentic self. Mm. And I think that that naturally um, is, is, is expansive. And so, yes, in a certain way. And I think that those sorts of tenets of inclusion um, and, and sustainability of this idea is definitely one thing that the school of fashion 
uh, is is really seeking to do right um, with their updated curriculum. So I think that's really awesome. You mentioned a lot of brands uh, are following this this idea. Uh, we just had Norma Kamali on a couple of weeks ago, and she's got her. Oh my god. <laughs> That's how I felt too. Oh my God. Listen, I just took a look at their last show. I look and like, I just love how they piece together their lookbook. Solid, solid. Wow. Is this um, the way of the future? Could this overtake traditional menswear and womenswear? I hope so. I definitely, definitely do. Um, I think that the binary um, system of fashion is at times very tacky and outdated and i would love for why do you um, say that why do you say tacky i mean tacky as <laughs> a kind of like not tacky as well no i said it so i'm going to stand behind it i just think it like reinforces norms that um that are at times and we've spoken about this very violent and and not inclusive and i and i really believe that the power of fashion um, is that it can create a more inclusive and a more colorful and a more fun world. And I think especially after what we've all been through over the last 18 months, I think yes. what we, we deserve kind of access to clothes and access to fashion experiences that are, that are, that are fun, you know, and, and not exclusionary. Mick Carter, it's really good work that you're doing. Keep it up. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show today. On the way, a little bit of magic and news about a leading edge resource called More Than Sex is launching in British Columbia for people two to three times more likely to experience mental health concerns. You've got the Sean Pru Show here on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167. Glad you're here. Welcome back to the Sean Pru Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Here's Sean Pru. Here I am. Glad you're with us. Happy weekend to you. Some magic coming your way in about a dozen minutes. But first, the organization is called HIM, Health Initiatives for Men, and it's based in BC. And HIM is about to launch a new province-wide resource for people two to three times more likely to experience mental health concerns than the general population. And that would be gay, bi, trans, and queer men, as well as two-spirit and gender-diverse people, GBTQ2Q, uh, for short, who are two to three times more likely to experience mental health concerns, as I mentioned. And the nonprofit, uh, like a him, exists to provide populations access to these kinds of health resources and services. Simon Rayek is the pro- program manager of health promotion. He joins us now to tell us more about the leading edge work that they're doing. Welcome to the show, Simon. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit more about him to start off and the work being done there. Great. Uh, health Initiative for Men has been around for over a decade, originally based in the Lower Mainland, but recently expanding our work to uh, all of BC. And what we really do is try to uh, try to strengthen the health and well-being of the communities of gay, bi, queer men, and gender diverse people through uh, programs, interventions, and supports really aimed at addressing sort of the numerous health inequities that our communities face. You mentioned a couple of them, including higher rates of um, anxiety, um, suicidality, um, but also, of course, there's um, HIV incidents, 
uh, isolation and uh, um, stigma-related incidents in healthcare, the workplace, et cetera. Um, so we've been doing that for about 10 years and over 10 years now. Um, and we're excited to be taking this next step with uh, More Than Sex, the resource that we're chatting about. Do we know why the rate is so much higher uh, where mental health concerns are, are uh, concerned? There's a number of different factors that um, research sort of indicates could be contributing to this. And a lot of them really are sort of societal factors that um, that impact a specific person. Because, for example, you know, if we aren't brought up with the with the norms that um, that that speak to the needs of our of our communities. For example, if we're taught about sex from a very sort of cis or straight perspective, or if we can't access healthcare that is meeting our needs or that or, or, talk, or are able to talk to doctors who even understand the mechanics of the kinds of sex that we're having. Um, that's the sort of the sexual health side. When it comes to social isolation, to suicidality, to anxiety, um, there's quite a bit of research that shows that things called, called minority stress which is um, a specific kind of stress that uh, minority populations feel because we are stigmatized, really contribute to a number of sort of negative health outcomes. Um, there's also um, something that we call the social determinants of health, which sort of talks about the different societal impacts that, are that, that have an impact on a specific person. And again, that's things like um, accessing healthcare that meets our needs, but it's also something like being able to find a community um, that we that understands us and that we understand and that we can sort of um, have a network of that grounds us and that um, feeds our well-being um, and not having that can lead to sort of these uh, negative health outcomes that you mentioned. Yeah. And, and we're talking about wanting a supportive environment as opposed to, say, for example, a judgmental environment or an ignorant environment, which I think for a long time, a lot of people um, who are queer have experienced often when seeking medical care. That's right. And often it's not malicious. Often it's just a matter of, of um, a healthcare system that hasn't um, adapted to or has been really placed to meet the needs of our populations. What other ways has the community been excluded from sexual health resources aimed at cis gay men? That's an excellent question. I think for um, a long time, in spite of our history of sort of um, advocacy and of um, working together to achieve sort of more justice when it comes to um, sort of social issues, um, cis gay men have uh, recently, I think, become a little bit more mainstream, a little bit more um, accepted into polite society, and so um, have really done a disservice in uh, the, the, the trans people, the non-binary people, the two-spirit people um, who have really um, been part of the community and been allies um, since, you know, the days of the AIDS crisis, not before. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in recent years, as attention is focused on sort of HIV prevention, that comes with a lot of um, assumptions around people's bodies, around the kinds of sex that um, we're having, uh, namely sort of penetrative sex with um, sort of uh, sexual organs that people are born with, penises. Um, and that's just not the reality. The reality is that our communities are much bigger than that. Our communities involve people with a bunch of different types of bodies whose needs just haven't been addressed by resources um, in the past, including from ones like the organization that I'm here speaking about him. Um, so our work has really been to try to course correct that and try to make uh, make it so that we are more inclusive and speak to the needs of the diverse communities that we work with and uh, represent and have obligations to. 
So that's the problem. And the solution is more than sex. Tell us about that. I would say more than sex is a first step to the solution, but I'm happy you, you framed it that way. Uh, more than sex is a, is a resource that we've been working on for two and a half years. And it's really been from the leadership of uh, trans, non-binary, two-spirit community members and leaders who, um, who came to the table and really told us what was missing. And what was missing was a holistic sort of primer that really spoke the, about the ins and outs of um, queer sex, but also sort of um, queer lifestyles, things that, again, we're not really taught at at a young age and we have to explore mm. by ourselves. Um, and in a way that isn't othering, that isn't sort of putting trans or uh, people who uh, aren't cis sort of in a box saying, you know, your resource belongs over here and the cis resource belongs over here. Um, so really what we did was a comprehensive resource that um, hopefully can be read by anyone. Um, they can be picked up and a person can learn about anything from HIV and STIs 101 to was it, what is it like to go to a gay bar and um, experience uh, different types of consent in those spaces. So take us through some of the sections of More Than Sex. There's Navigating a Queer World. That's right. Um, so it's, it's sort of split up. It's sort of split up into two. One section is around um, sort of the societal factors that we talk about, a bit of the social norms in the queer community, and those are the sections navigating a queer world and mental and social health. The first again speaks to those things that we're not really taught uh, at a young age, unless maybe we're raised by queer people or have access to sort of queer supports from an early age. Right. And that's just, again, the things that um, that we, through self-discovery, a lot of us experience with a lot of joy, but a lot of us experience with a lot of hardship. And that includes, again, going to the gay bar. Um, what is it like to um, access healthcare that um, maybe uh, isn't responsive to our needs? Um, what is it like to experience discrimination from within the community, either because of our bodies or because of um, our racialized identities or our disabilities? Who's then, contributing, who's contributing um, to these sections? Uh, the sections were written in dialogue and in collaboration with uh, a number of contractors and community or and community leaders um, who really guided the material and then vetted the material. So um, we spoke to these community leaders that I mentioned, trans, non-binary, two-spirit people. We really fleshed out with them, with their leadership, sort of what were the main topics that we wanted to have in the resource. Um, but we worked with a couple of contractors, um, one of whom is uh, trans which I think is important to state um, mm. and uh, really flesh those ideas out then brought it back to these community leaders for their sort of guidance and vetting and approval. Um, and that's sort of why it took as long as it did, because there was so many of us working and ending, and ending with a, a resource that's pretty, pretty ginormous and pretty holistic and really tries to speak to the needs um, that we identified um, with those community leaders. And yet you said this is just part one of, of your intention. Tell us about what's next. That's right. And I think, um, you know, I would call on organizations across Canada, not just the one that I'm here speaking about him, um, to really sort of start interrogating um, the work that we're doing and ensuring that the work that we're doing speaks to the needs of the community as it exists now and not as we believed it to exist 10 years ago. Um, so him has undertaken in the last couple of years a pretty gigantic what we're calling a gender audit, um, really trying to determine um, in what ways have we um, let down or um, not been responsive to the needs of trans, non-binary, two-spirit community members um, from within the workplace as well as sort of in the programming and interventions that we're doing um, and trying to see how does it make sense with the mandate that we have to um, do a little bit more active work um, to address those needs and address those gaps and address 
10 years of not doing that work. Um, so we're working with um, a number of, again, community leaders who themselves are trans, non-binary or two-spirit um, in fleshing out what that might be. And that could look like anything from um, ensuring that our spaces are um, safe for trans people or trans uh, non-binary two-spirit people, including, for example, bathrooms and making sure that bathrooms aren't um, being policed based on people's genders. Right. Um, to everything from, you know, really having to take a, a strong look at um, our core tenants and principles and seeing if they need uh, modifying. What were the challenges of this very huge shift? Because <laughs> because you you talk about the way we did things ten years ago, and indeed yeah. um, this is a, a, a far more modern um, and leading edge version of that. But I wonder about buy in from from different members of the community and willingness to to make the shift uh, with you guys. What was that like? You you kind of groaned when I said challenges. So there were many. I <laughs> I assume. I don't know that it was a groan. It was more of a bemused laughter. Um, <laughs> I would say that actually the biggest, I wouldn't call it a challenge. I would call it um, sort of um, the, the first real um, thing we had to tackle maybe um, was actually buy-in from trans non-binary and spirit people who have been um, neglected or dismissed or, you know, I don't want to speak for, to, for the experiences for all of those community members, because we do have community members who have been involved with him for a long time who do identify that way. But I think on the whole, it's safe to say that um, Health Initiative for Men and other organizations um, have maybe not been as responsive to the needs of those community members as we should have been. Um, so getting buy-in from those communities is actually the first step. Um, in the process of doing the what I mentioned, the gender audit, we did have focus groups with um, cis people, people who aren't trans, non-binary to spirit, and really tried to dissect sort of what are the what are the core things about him that would that sort of speak to you and how can we make these things more inclusive without alienating because we understand that you know uh, for better or worse um cis people still make up and will continue to make up the majority of our clients and so it's important not to alienate them what we found in those discussion groups was actually that there is a lot of openness and buy-in um to change and i think so i was wondering uh, what the reaction was yeah people to this I, I think we were. I think some of us were surprised to to go to those focus groups and to see the the, the reports that came out of it and, and see that actually, um, when explained um, in a way that made sense to people, uh, there is quite a bit of buy-in and understanding um, that opening the umbrella doesn't mean having to close the umbrella for anybody else, right? right? And and I think that. Once we were able to communicate that, and I think that will be the challenge moving forward, communicating that just because we're opening the umbrella doesn't mean that you yourself are no longer going to be getting the services that you need. Um, I think there's a, 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 you know, I think that there's, we're in a moment right now where those, um, where, where people are recognizing that those are things that need to happen. Tell us where to go to check this out before we have to uh, say goodbye, Simon. Excellent. Yes. Uh, if you go to morethansex.ca. Um, you'll see the whole resource. It's free to anybody. It um, includes a, some nifty uh, infographics that um, we're hoping that nurses and doctors will print out and put in their, off uh, their offices. Um, and then you can also check us out on uh, Facebook or any social media where uh, you'll see all of the more than sex uh, content that we're putting out, uh, as well as um, some really exciting stuff to do with pride, which um, some, of it, some of which ties into more than sex in this mission that we're having or this um these activities we're doing to sort of broaden that gender umbrella this is really great i, I hope uh, it goes well for you and uh, continues to be received well simon rayek is the program manager of health promotion at him and glad to have you on the show coming up in just a minute i've been teasing magic here it comes after this break you've got the sean Proust show 
SiriusXM Canada Talks, Channel 167. Glad you're here. You were perfectly formed for the season. You were wonderfully made. Marvelous, amorous, glorious, victorious. You're listening to The Sean Pru Show with Sean Pru on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. I've been teasing and promising you some magic all through the show, and now it's time. Attention, beauty junkies, and anyone who wants softer, brighter, smoother skin, I've made a discovery. For the last two weeks, I've been using this device that must be magical because the results are, it's called the Age Lock Lumi Spa. And I use it twice a day for two minutes. I took a picture of myself, a selfie before I started using it. And two weeks later, I was just saying to our guests, showing her my face, you can see the difference. My skin looks brighter, healthier, and just from washing it from the Age Lock Lumi Spa. And so I've reached out and pulled our expert guests out today who can tell us what on earth. Jan Coppin first joined the beauty industry at age four when she discovered her mother's lipstick, passionate about helping people look beautiful from the inside out. She likes to say she's making aging history, and she knows all about this magical device, the Age Lock Lumis Spa. Welcome to the show, Jan. Thank you, Sean. And your I'm skin... excited. <laughs> I am too. Your skin really does look really fresh and clear since the last time I saw you. So, uh, yes, it really is a magical little device. It is the Lumi Spa, and um, it has won numerous beauty awards, including four years in a row, best cleansing device. So it cleans your skin perfectly. It does much more than that, though. Um, so I'll tell you about that in, in a minute. So anything? So, so why does it work? What is it doing? You divide your face into four sections and then you spend about 30 seconds on each section. The device will tell you when to switch sections and all of a sudden your skin is looking better. Exactly. Well, it's got this um, little head on it, which is easy, snaps on and off to clean. Um, You can use it in the shower. All you do is you switch the device on and it rotates. I don't know if you can see that at all. Rotates. in two different directions, massages your face, cleanses it, exfoliates, refreshes, diminishes the pore size, but best of all, it builds collagen. It increases the collagen um, 39% with the use of this Lumi Spa, which means it's firming up your skin, it's increasing the density of your skin, it's lifting your face. And I did a half face demo, which I don't like to show you the photo. <laughs> I've because, seen it. <laughs> yes, you've got to see it. It really does lift your face right up. And you just, it's so easy to use. Easy switches it on and off. You can plug it in um, to charge it. The charge lasts a long time. Um, and uh, it's quick and easy. And you can use it in the shower. And as Sean said, morning and evening twice a day and that's it and it works it's also um beautifully designed it reminds me when i put it in my hand you know how um the feeling of the iphone when you put it in your hand it feels nice it's part of the excellent design of the iphone i feel the same way when when i'm using that it's a beautiful design yes it's an absolutely gorgeous design it's super easy to hold um you know to use 
very gentle on your skin. We've done experiments using it on an egg yolk. It does not break the egg yolk. And yet it does all these magical things to your skin. So um, it's, it's gentle, but it's very effective. I don't think there's a, there's a word um, that's been more prominent in um, beauty talk than collagen over the last few years. Why is that? Well, collagen, our skin needs collagen. It's what firms it and it's underlying the, the pinnings of the skin. So it firms your skin um, dramatically. It, it helps in many areas. We need collagen. And, and as a matter of fact, we will be introducing a collagen product very soon, um, which um, will increase to about 80% use of this. So collagen is very important for us to have in the body. It helps grow hair. It firms the skin. It grows your nails. Um, it's just something. It's the big buzzword of the moment. We all need more collagen. Lumispa isn't just um, a device that got the uh, all those awards. It's been featured in everything from Paris Vogue to Elle magazine, hasn't it? It's been featured in absolutely every, every magazine. Um, Featured a lot in in just receiving the awards. Um, there was a big uh, launch of it in Paris, actually, with all the beauty uh, companies, and nobody has been able able to duplicate this device. It is patented, of course, and um, beautifully designed, simple, simple to use. You use it with a cleansing gel. Um, I'm just showing you how easy it is to remove the head and to put it under the tap to wash it. You use it with a cleansing cleansing gel, and you must use the cleansing gel, this one. Not only does it have treatment in the gel, but it gives you the right slip and grip with the device. So it goes on beautifully, and you get the right results. If you were to use another uh, gel, it does not give you the same effect or mm. results. So I hear uh, people important. wanting to know how much this costs. Um, very affordable. Very affordable. Very, very affordable. Um, it's around, it's way under $300, um, $249 um, for one of these if you become a member with me. And uh, it's, um, as I said, super easy to to use, use it in the shower. I think that's why men really like it. Um, and I have a lot of customers, men customers, um, almost on the same level as women now because it's so simple to use and you could just pop in the shower and use it and, and you're done. This is great too if you've got problems skin like acne and, and if you're a teen with acne, it's really helped a lot of people you were saying to me once. Oh, it's absolutely changed the lives of teenagers. It's quite yeah. remarkable. You get uh, a sensitive head to use with it for acne. You get a, a different treatment gel specifically designed for acne. And it's changed the lives of teenagers because their skin cleans up. And there's nothing worse for any age, but teenagers in particular to have these acne all over their skin. And it it's also helps with rosacea. Um, it just really is a remarkable little device. It's I magical. Think, 
It is magical. And, uh, and I think one of the things that, um, when you think about the price point of it, um, that's like two visits to a spa for a facial. Do you know what I mean? And, and this is an investment that you're Ooh. making in your skin every single day. That's uh, increasing collagen by, I think you said 39%. It is. Yeah. Yes, 39%. Yes, it's amazing. It is, it's a remarkable um, price for it. And as you say, you've got it for life. You don't have to go to the spa every day or once a week or whatever you normally were doing. Um, it just does everything. And I love that it it also diminishes pore size, particularly for people who have those the large nose. pores, the nose. Yes. And the you nose. can see it cleans them, it cleans them out so that then they can close. And therefore, no more, no more of those big pores that you see. I'm so vain, Jan, that I keep looking at myself in the Zoom screen here to look at my amazing skin. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for introducing sure. me. I know. I, I'm amazed too. Before you came on, I was like staring at you like, wow, Sean, it really, really has. It does this. work. It does work. And if you want one to work for you, uh, this is what you do. You contact Jan Coppen through Facebook, J-A-N-N-C-O-P-P-E-N, J-A-N-N-C-O-P-P-E-N on Facebook, and she'll set you up. Oh, look at you, clever. Look at you, clever. You can't see this, but she's got it printed no, out on her see. T-shirt. <laughs> Just because Jan is an unusual spelling with two N's. So, yes, Jan Coppin, and I'd be happy to tell you more about it. So much information on it. So much research and development went into making this. Um, I love that about the products, that there's the science behind them and the independent um, clinical trials. It's called Lumi Spa, and it is magic. I'm telling you that right now. Jan Coppin, thank you for coming on the show today. I appreciate you sharing this um, for all the beauty junkies out there that listen. Appreciate you. <laughs> My pleasure. I enjoyed, enjoyed telling everybody about the Lumi Spa. That's it for this week. We are back next weekend. Until then, I wish you peace and love and thanks for listening. Oh, my rebel.